Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with Games in Schools and Libraries, and I am so excited to be speaking with today's guest. You know, a lot of times I get to talk with other people who, you know, do work with game design or, you know, or on just all kinds of other subjects. But what I really love is um, what Patrick does is all about how he uses games in his classroom as part of, you know, just his instructional methodology. And I think there's a lot of really cool things here that other teachers can use, especially if you teach history, but certainly other subjects too, in terms of how he uses games. So Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, I'm so thrilled that this worked out. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Patrick Rail. I'm a history professor at Bowdoin College, which is a selective liberal arts college in Brunswick, Maine. I have been in this job for 23 years, and my uh, research specialty is African-American history. Uh, I've written several books on uh, effectively the uh, role of African-Americans in uh, bringing about the end of slavery through anti-slavery activism. Oh, wow. And that's relevant today, too. You know, I've seen reverberations of that today with movements like Black Lives Matter. Exactly. Uh, contemporary events uh, have very strong historical resonances. So understanding uh, uh, where we are now requires understanding something about where we have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I used to teach, full disclosure, <laughs> high school history and middle school history, and my approach to it was, you know, a little bit different, but especially when I was teaching middle school, but I remember my very first job, um, I was hired in November because they'd had a teacher who didn't quite work out, and these kids were just kind of in a state because the teacher wasn't very effective, and so within my first month of school, I was mummifying chickens because we were studying ancient Egypt. And, um, and I think, and this is such a terrible segue from like the seriousness of what you're just talking about now that I think about it, but that's all right. <laughs> so many different ways to teach history. We're going to get back to the serious stuff in a second. But anyway, I still actually have, uh, one of those chickens from that very first round that we mummified in my classroom now. So I now have like a 14 year old mummified chicken. <laughs> I, I, I guess it was a good mummification because it's yeah, still it worked. It works. It smells like dry dog food, in case you're curious. Um, but let's go back. Let's go back to what you were talking about. So, so you, so instead, so you primarily focus in studying African American history and the end of slavery, which is really, really cool. Um, and I think, you know, especially for your students, there's just so much just like ways for them to connect with what happened. This is why Patrick teaches what sure. he does, and this is why I taught what I did, which is why I don't teach history anymore, I guess. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I think it, I mean it's it, I think it's really difficult to get students to um, comprehend something like slavery uh, in the classroom, um, mm -hmm. and particularly at the at the levels of middle middle school and high school. Um, it's an enormously sensitive topic. And so yes. on the one hand, we're kind of required to develop historical empathy with um, actors from the past and the things that they did to try to connect with their worlds. On the other hand, um, when those worlds involved practices like reducing human beings to property, it gets to be very, very difficult to create that kind of empathy. Putting oneself in that position or asking children to put themselves in that position can be really, really challenging. So there might be some potential in games to um, engage students on challenging topics uh, in effective ways. 
Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that, especially I'm really interested in your thoughts on incorporating challenging content into games. But for let's we'll start at the beginning, though. So did you um, when did you start gaming? Were you a gamer and a teacher? Did you discover games through your teaching? How did this um, yeah. how did your journey happen? <clears throat> I was uh, I was that that kid in the 70s uh, who was always told on report cards that uh, he had such potential if only he would apply himself. <laughs> Uh, because mostly what I was doing was trying to play games after school. Um, yeah. First role playing games and then, uh, got into board games. And it was always my, my go-to place. It was never something, you know, it was something we might have dreamt about doing for a living when we got older, but, um, it was pretty much understood in the 70s and 80s that that was never going to happen. Right. And then, lo and behold, games became an actual field of study and an enormous business and um, have sort of revolutionized everything. And now games are creeping their way into education in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I was originally – I always loved both history and games and kind of had these two selves that could never be reconciled mm -hmm. uh, until I finally got to this stage in my career where um, it became clear to me that unless I – that this was possible to merge these two selves, I just mm -hmm. had to figure out a way to try to do it. So that's kind of my trajectory. So when you decided to – did you start incorporating games into classes because – what you teach now basically has gaming and history part of like, it's part of like the marquee title of the class. Did you start slowly introducing games into your classes or did you say, nope, we're going to just start from the, we're going to make the game about games, how you, we use games to study history. How did the courses you teach develop? Yeah, um, I've always tried to include um, different kinds of classroom games or simulations into my uh, classes. Um, uh, we might do a sharecropping of, uh, I'm sorry, a simulation of the sharecropping negotiation after the Civil War, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, history instructors very often incorporate those kinds of things into their courses. Um, I've also used uh, the reacting to the past game system, which is a historical role playing system. But here the effort was to try to, so um, we're talking about a course here. I taught it as an upper level seminar here at Bowdoin with 16 students. And the objective there was to take commercial commercially available board games with historical themes and to essentially subject them to historical analysis to try mm -hmm. to see um, what kinds of historical arguments they made, how the medium of games makes historical arguments, and what kind of tools we might need to analyze them as historical arguments. Yes. So instead of instead of the principle here wasn't so much to um, learn history by by playing games, it was more to learn about history and games by analyzing their historical content. Yeah, well, see, I'm at a point with my students now. I teach middle school gifted kids, and, and I do game design, and so they're designing themes, and it's really interesting, especially nowadays. There's a lot of obviously awareness of you know cultural appropriation when it comes to using other people's cultures for entertainment purposes. And so I've got this one little game called Marrakesh. It's a simple little game by Gigamic. It's a great game. And you just, you know, about spatial placement and, you know, strategic moves and stuff, but it's set in like a, you know, a Marrakesh rug market. Well, mm -hmm. you know, you're taking this whole culture and distilling it down into this one thing just for the purpose of a game. I mean, it's cute. There's nothing that, you know, people might find offensive about it, you know. Um, 
But that said, as you're still borrowing from someone else's culture, you know, to make yeah. it into a game and that itself can be kind of fraught. So I think really, but you're not looking at games like Marrakesh. You're looking at games that are much more in depth and developed in terms of incorporation, incorporating content into the gaming itself. That is, yeah, we're sort of on the edge in many ways between those two things. So I, I think the most historically sophisticated games tend to be the least playable. So, right. um, you know, there are um, heavily detailed battle simulations mm-hmm. that have, of course, been out there from the 60s and 70s. And they're still alive today. I think the real change came with these these Euro games, mm-hmm. um, the generation of Catan and Pandemic and Ticket to Ride. And... Uh, I, I think what we're seeing now is a kind of merging of those two things. Um, and it, it's, it's fascinating because uh, you point out that the Euro games um, raise some interesting questions of cultural representation that I don't think they intended to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Euro game revolution in many ways was sparked by a desire to get away from, uh, from war. Um, you know, this is, this is Germany in the post-war decades. Mm-hmm. So uh, games were developed that sort of avoided war. And of course, they're family oriented. They have internal clocks. They don't have player elimination, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But I think as part of that effort, the desire was to was to pose themes for games that seemed family friendly and safe. But there was always a kind of – because there was a nostalgic quality to the family game ex- experience that Eurogames encapsulated, they do sometimes recall these themes that um, – in modern days, we might consider a little bit Orientalist. Um, so we get themes of discovery and exploration, exotic locales like um, the medieval Muslim world or mm-hmm. Marrakesh, as you describe. And uh, these do raise some questions that I, d- I think their, entire, uh, their designers did not really intend to raise. And I think it's, but I think they're good questions, even if they weren't, like they were well intentioned. You know, speaking of Catan, yes. I just wrote um, a chapter for a book on using Catan in the classroom and you know and we touched on colonialism which is one of the big topics you touch on and we'll get to that mm-hmm. um but it's about the representation of the robber and who does the robber represent now yes. with um the, with Catan um Catan studio here and um Catan um GMBMH or whatever it's called um they've shifted the color of the robber it's it's no longer black now it's mm. gray they that was an intentional shift on their part but especially for Catan it's basically a barren land or seen as a barren land with all these resources and then you know they're just able i mean and so there's a lot of interesting discussions on how well Catan really represents, you know, colonialism just with this abundance of resources that you can just take versus taking from someone else. But there's that question of who does the robber represent? Does the yes. robber represent the indigenous people, you know, and he's just something to like get in your way and try to like, you know, throw yes. against other people. But there's a lot of really, you can really look at just that one simple little game mechanism and look at all the larger questions it poses, especially when you're looking at it from a European American sort of centric view of colonialism. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And Kalan, uh, Catan, of course, is so um, so heavily abstracted that it doesn't uh, ostensibly purport to be about a specific time or place. Mm-hmm. Um, but its uh, mechanics closely mirror other games that do make uh, mm-hmm. more concrete analogies with a historical past of exploration and colonial settlement games like archipelago or colonial or endeavor these kinds of things Mm -hmm. raise some really um, interesting issues 
Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about five tribes. Um, yes. Yeah, which, you know, came out with uh, slaves basically as a resource. And then when they did the second version, they shifted away from that because people had a hard time with using slaves, the idea of using people as a resource that could be equivalent, the equivalent of other, some other type of ob- object property in the game to use as a resource. And so it brings yeah. the questions yeah. like, but it was used, people were used. As objects and property, but then is it okay to gamify that? Exactly. Yeah. What What does a game ask its players to do? Or is a game asking you to effectively become a slaveholder who is using uh, slave labor? Uh, or is a game asking you to engage in the slave trade? Or uh, like a game like Freedom, the Underground Railroad, Brian Mayer's game, is it a game that's asking you to end slavery? Those are all uh, choices that mm-hmm. game designers make, and they have consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real, that's why I think this class is so incredibly fascinating, because you're able to look at events through history you know, it's all about choices from the choices the actors made at the time, but also looking at how designers choose to represent them as well. And there's, it's so fascinating in terms of how we view history, how we come to terms with our place in it, how we deal with the evils of history, and where do we go from that? Yeah, and it, of course, it engenders um, enormous debates, and you see these uh, raging in the th- in the forum threads on Board Game Geek all the mm. time. Um, where and the, the the general shape of the debate is somebody expresses concern about some element of representation in a game that they find uncomfortable. Mm. Um, the slave card in five tribes or um <clears throat> the appearance of the of the robber in Catan, for example. Mm-hmm. Um and then others come back in and and usually the response is some form of it's only a game. Like mm-hmm. this is a trivial endeavor and therefore everything about it is somehow divorced from the cultural matrix that comes out of it, that it mm-hmm. comes out of. Um and and it's it's a very curious debate. It always seems to go down the same way. And at some point Neither of those polar positions seems to suffice. Um, on the one hand, it, it can't be just a game. We know that games historically have always been critical reflections of the cultures that produce them for good and bad. Um, there are games about from Nazi Germany about expelling all the Jews. I mean, it's mm-hmm. incredible. Uh, so we can't take that line that games have no cultural significance whatsoever outside their play value. Yet on the other, the point of games is to play and to have fun and to mm-hmm. uh, it, to create a space where it is possible to imagine yourself um, doing things that you would not otherwise be able to do. And there might be some kind of uh, creative and even broader social or political value in allowing that kind of space in a culture. Mm-hmm. But it, there is some danger there. And that's part of what makes games interesting. Okay, so let's. This is a perfect time for you to go. I think more in depth about, um, like, give it an example. You can talk about multiple games or just one game, but an example of how you use the game, how you use it to explore these questions with your students. And I would like to add, and we'll make sure that um, we have links to this. That Patrick has shared um, his blog on Board Game Geek, and it goes in depth all about um, 
like how he does it with essay prompts. He's got, you know, the way he runs his labs. There's so much that you've put out there for teachers if they want to look this over to see how they could incorporate this into what you do because it's absolutely fascinating and it's so rich in terms of what you've provided, which is phenomenal. So, but Thank yeah, you. so I'd love to hear you t- um, talk about like one of your games or how like examples sure. of what you yeah. do. Thanks. And, and I'm aware that this is just one model. So there are all kinds of ways to do this. And I'm, um, because I'm a college educator, I started working at essentially the, t- the top of my curriculum because I, um, and, and over time, I hope to refine this and make it accessible at sort of lower developmental le- levels. But the, the, the notion was, uh, for this course, we we're going to take six moments in American history, running from exploration and colonization through the Civil War. And we're going to try to explore those six beats with, um, each with a commercial board game, a commercially available board game. And so we'd have two weeks for each game and we'd have a game lab. Uh, so there's two class sessions a week, uh, where we explore the history around, um, the game's topic. Uh, and we'd also do some reading and game study. So we'd start to develop our, our, uh, our chops in that discipline. Um, and so the, we, we began with a game on exploration and, colonization called Colonial Europe's Empires Overseas by a designer named Christopher Pont. And um, uh, we continued on with Liberty or Death, a rather challenging game from GMT's coin system by Harold Buchanan. Uh, we went on to a game called Founding Fathers, published by Jolly Roger Games, which is about the formation of the Constitution in 1787. We then had two games uh, by the same designer on Lewis and Clark. Uh, that was an interesting way to explore how one designer can do can explore the same historical theme with two different sets of mechanics. Uh, and then we had Freedom the Underground Railroad, which is an anti-slavery game. And then we ended with Divided Republic on the election of 1860. So this, the, for each one of these uh, beats, we were able to uh, read some historical scholarship. We were able to look at some primary source evidence on the topics that were involved uh, and actually play the game. And then students would write analytical papers on these. Essentially, they're exercises in game criticism. Mm-hmm. Which is fin- which is fantastic because you know that's such a a deep thing you know to have students do as it relates to games. You know we play games and it's usually you know we talk about it in terms of its entertainment value. Was it fun? Did you like it? Did you feel like a pirate? Yeah, I got to shoot my cannon. It was great. You know that sort yep. of thing. Yep. And this is a whole other level. So how do your students respond to this? Do they have different expectations when they come in? Um, do they you know what do you do when you have non gamers come in? How do how do you yeah, how do the students I, respond to this? Th- this for this first hour. I had a, a highly self-selected bunch of 16 excellent students, and they were all uh, – they were amazing. Uh, some of them were not gamers. I was a little surprised when when we went around and introduced ourselves. Um, there were a lot of students who were sort of interested in games, or, or they said that their game experience was uh, – so, yes, we play lots of games in our family, you know, Scrabble and Stratego and Risk and those kinds of things. But they hadn't really been turned on to the modern game revolution. So mm-hmm. – for a lot of them, this was their entry point to that whole world. Um, for others, uh, they were the leaders of the campus board game group uh, club, which boasts the highest uh, nominal membership of any other social club on campus. So <laughs> – um, 
there were some true believers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did really, they did really well. Um, it, it, we essentially approached board games as yet another media that is making claims about the past. So uh, I've taught previous courses on um, the appearance of history in feature films, for example. Um, and one of the things we're interested in doing in a class like that is figuring out what is how do we understand this genre this medium what are its rules how do how do hollywood feature films actually make historical arguments what are the kind of conventions of film narrative that we can look at and in the same way like that's important because probably more americans learn history through Hollywood films nowadays than they do from actually reading history books. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, games are yet another medium uh, where historical arguments are made. But like films, they have their own conventions, their own rules as a medium. So this class was really about trying to develop the tools necessary to think about those conventions and how games actually operate to make historical claims. Yeah. Cause I'm looking at, um, on your blog, you, the students, um, are, so I'll just read from there. Students are required to write essays analyzing the games we play. And so they formulate prompts for the essays. And so some of these um, prompts that the students came up with, they're phenomenal. And not only that, but there's so many um, different ways they identify. So for example, one, in colonial victory is not determined by a nation's economy, treasury and merchant fleets, military might, navy, or oversea empire, discoveries, resources, and colonies, but by its prestige. One could achieve victory by discovering a new territory with one ship and their entire fleet, empty coffers, and without establishing a colony or even harvesting resource. This mechanic allows for a result that history would not, a structurally weak nation becoming preeminent. Why allow for a contradictory victory, and what does this suggest about prestige? So this absolutely marries the gamesmanship aspect of it, of the media, as well as the actual content and looking at, you know, what this, what these events are and how they actually played out in reality versus how they're represented in the game. And this is what a student comes up with. They're they're amazing. The um, so yeah, the the challenge was uh, for every game they had to um, write prompts for other students. So essentially, they were helping each other out by trying to craft the questions that could frame an analytical essay. But what you see students doing there are um, analyzing components of virtually all game systems, like how do you win? What what is a win? How does the game represent a win? And thinking about how that actually constitutes some kind of historical argument. Um, the, the, the clearest incentives in a game are offered by its victory conditions. So being able to think about what a game is driving you to do is a really good clue into figuring out what its central historical claims might be. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. What's been your biggest surprise in terms of how this class has gone, in terms of what you've done? I, I was... Uh, blown away by uh, the quality of work that came out of this. Um, and I, I think that it owed to um, students' engagement with the themes and topics and, and, and the medium. So th- the fact that these were all sharp mm-hmm. students, um, we always, you know, I'm always blessed by a lot of great students, but they were just particularly energized here because um, the thing that they were doing in the normal course of the semester's work was something that was fun and interesting and intellectually engaging. Mm-hmm. So uh, my hope is that that high level of student motivation 
produced a level of work that I found to be uncustomarily high. Well, see, and that's why I teach game design to my middle school gifted kids, because, I mean, they're all incredibly, you know, they have incredible potential, they've tested, you know, done well in IQ tests, and for many of them, they don't often struggle within their classes, you know, general, I mean, that's not true of all of them, of course, Mm -hmm. but what I love about game design is it has there's no ceiling in terms of what they can do in terms of their own interpretation and work. And they have to work really, really hard at this, you know, to really think about these complex systems at play and how they can develop a system that's playable. And I mean, it's, it's an engineering process. You know, there's so much in terms of, you know, like for Sternberg's theory on intelligence, this is just, you know, hitting it out of the park. But the main thing with it is, you know, it requires a lot of work, a lot of effort from them. But at the same time, because it's games, that games part really helps keeps them hooked. That game part keeps them motivated to keep doing it because, you know, testing out a machine or something like that, that might get kind of old. But when you're with your friends and you're creating like their own sort of table narrative as well as, you know, playing the game and they're having fun with it, you know, that really pushes them to keep going forward. And so using games, there is that entertainment aspect to this that, you know, is probably helping you quite a bit in making this class successful. I think so. I think that that internal motivation that comes from People who are uh, engaged in games, who, who, who want to play, who find it fun and entertaining to play, who are trying to win. If, if the game is designed properly, then the experience of trying to win uh, will should teach you something useful. Um, I, it, there, I've been trying to find more and more scholarship understanding the place of games and education in the games and classroom. And at, at, at one level, at the sort of driest level of measuring things, um, the evidence seems to be a little ambivalent. Like if you compel a bunch of students to play chess all the time, they won't necessarily get better math scores. So in that way, maybe it's hard to find a link between games and education. But it seems almost impossible for anyone who works with games in the classroom to not see them as enormously valuable and largely in ways that we're moving away from in every other trend in education. As we do more standardized testing, more number crunching, more concern about test scores, this is um, uh, an almost unquantifiable uh, benefit uh, of having games in the classroom is that it, it brings together so many different kinds of thinking that have got to be useful in helping students grow. Well, and I, and I see that with mine because mine are, you know, middle school. So they're right in the mix of all the testing, all the measurement. You know, there's a lot of pressure on teachers to make things measurable, which means if, you know, it's something that's harder to quantify like yourself, you know, they, they, it's like you said, you know, sometimes they just pull back from that, you know, but the one thing and the, the most one of the most difficult things for kids to believe in some ways when I teach the classes, you know, they're like, what if my game's not good? Will I get a bad grade? No, you won't get a bad grade, you know, because I'm really interested in the process. It's that, you know, that critical thinking, you know, the creativity, you know, how they employ that, that, you know, their production, that's what I want them to work on. That's what we're really developing. So the game won't be finished. The game may not be that great, but it's going to be better than where it started from. But it's really, really hard for them to yes. under to that to not have a good game can still mean that you were successful. They some kids yeah. leave the class. I mean, they could have an A plus, and they can leave the class feeling like 
you know, they didn't do so well because the game itself wasn't good. They have that really like hard objective, you know, you know, kind of look to learning. And so it's, it's a big shift. A lot of what I do is trying to coach kids into thinking, you know, about this as a process and a development, exactly. not as just the end goal. Okay, done. Now move on. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. Yeah, in, in a an educational culture where uh, everything is largely valued in terms of product, um, game playing and game design are all about process. And this is what I see when I work with students who are, uh, you know, working with various educational challenges is that, uh, if you can, it, it can be very, very hard for a student who's, um, maybe not had the same kind of preparation as other students or is working with a learning disability or something. It can be very hard to, 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 to give them moments of success in kind of conventional terms. I can ask them to write the ninth four to six page essay, but at some point there's just, uh, a, a place where they're going to top out. Uh, engaging that student um, through games, whether it's analyzing or playing or both, is can be extremely useful. Because um, what you're doing there, I think, whether you're designing games or playing games, is it's really about iterative process. Um, when you're designing games the way you do with your students, it's like, what is, what is the objective? What are we trying to achieve here? And how can we use this box of mechanics to try to create an experience for people so that they can discover that themselves? That is... It's, it's, it's incredible. It's not just about whatever the content is, whether you're using games to teach biology or history or sociology or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's not just about the content. It's about the, it's about the process. And so essentially when you're making a game, you're sort of creating a learning system for somebody else. And so if students are making games, they're effectively designing learning systems for others. And as we know, as teachers, there's no better, better way to learn something than to try to teach it. Right. Right. Well, and I think what I like about this too is you know, especially like you said, for struggling students, you know, who might have difficulty, you know, you know, doing like the required, you know, reading is necessary for a class about, you know, so that they can learn the content so that they can then analyze it and talk about it because you can interweave it into a game, into this system that works so well, and they get little pieces of content, you yes. know, in terms of like specific details, but on how they see all these factors really moving together, you know, you're going to be able to engage and reach that student where they feel like, yes, I can do this. You probably could have some students who really struggle in other classes who suddenly are more successful than they've ever been, especially if they have the ability to really think and process this out. Like I'm thinking about this one student that I've had in the past who is severely dyslexic and mm -hmm. he was one of the most gifted game designers I've ever had one of his games actually got picked up by a uh. publisher it didn't make it into it didn't make it to production but it got picked up because the game was that good and the thing with this student though is he's um you know severely dyslexic and mm -hmm. so for him you know what was so amazing to me is he's, he has such a difficulty in terms of writing and all that but because he's so visual and he thinks basically like 3d models Modeling. By yes. the time he would make prototypes and have them hit the table, they'd already been iterated successfully in his head multiple times, whereas some kids would put stuff down and like everything just falls apart. It's like a house of cards. They didn't like they didn't really think it all through. His right. were so so well thought through that, you know, they were just really good games from the start. He actually took game design with me multiple times. 
because like we found something for him and I so mm-hmm. hope that this is something he's able to continue doing, but we found something for him where it just takes the absolute best of his abilities and he's able to just really use it and develop it and feel good in an authentic way about what he's capable of. Yeah. And, and the, the design thinking and the design skills, the conceptualization, it, it's all happening at a very, very high level. Um, it, it, it's amazing the, the number of skills that come together, uh, in game design and game playing, um, that, that educators just have kind of largely ignored. But when you think about even playing a game, um, a game is by its nature iterative. You, 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 you know, there's a goal. You know, there's, there are some mechanisms that you can use to try to get there, but you don't know what the most efficient pathway through. You don't know what the pitfalls are. So you're always starting, you're always playing a game and you're thinking, I'm going to try this. And then you're backing up and trying something else. That is iteration. And of course, it happens in game design as well. I'm trying to create this experience, but that didn't quite work. Let me try to add more dice or throw in a card system or something. That process of iteration is exactly the hard thing I have, the, the thing that is very hard for my students to do. When they're right, they tend to think, well, I'm going to fill up these pages and then I'm going to hand it in and then it's, and then it's done. And the hardest thing to get my college writers to understand is that, um, experienced writers, professional writers, um, are constantly iterating, that they're editing in their heads before words ever get on paper. And then once words are on paper, they're, they're backing up. And so that the writing that seems the most effortless to read is the writing that probably took the most iterations to develop. If they are mirroring that practice, whether it's in game design or game playing, then they're learning something about the value of iteration. They're learning that you don't go from zero to 60 in one step, that you have to try a few times, and that all these things involve um, techniques and skills that are practicable. So even students, and to me, this is tr- tremendously important because I strongly believe in democratic education. I believe that every student can learn if we uh, approach the students at the right developmental level and in the right developmental way. So to, to have students here at this fancy liberal arts college who are struggling and then to show them that they can actually get better with some coaching and some practice and that that is normal. That is the way all knowledge is created. That is the way all skills are built. I think that's hugely valuable. Well, I agree because, you know, especially when it comes to um, when I work with teachers to teach them how to teach game design, I say, you are a game designer. Whenever you come up with an idea for a lesson yes. and you try it out and it doesn't quite work and you make some adjustments to it, that's what we're talking about here. And that's a, and what you're talking about with your students is the same thing that I'm talking about with my students. And that's why I like doing this. And I wish more would do this at, you know, this level because, you know, they're used to doing the project, turning it in getting a good grade, and then moving on. But learning that this is the project that just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and learning how to, you know, work through that process of all of these different iterations and seeing improvement as you get, you know, like, can you see yourself getting better? Because they tend to be very binary in their thinking, especially because they're gifted. And this is part of not necessarily their fault, but this is kind of what people layer on sometimes is they're expected to get it right the first time. And 
so yes. for them to not get it right the first time, you know, some kids really, really struggle and have a hard time bouncing back. And so a lot of what I do is just, get, again, coaching them through that process. And one of my favorite things that happened last semester was I was explaining to a dad at parent-teacher conferences what we were doing, how we were doing it. And he looked at me, and, and I'm in St. Louis, and so... um and he looked at me, he's, and, and, he te- and he said, I teach game design at Washington University in St. Louis, which is an no excellent university. And he said, what you're doing with your students is exactly the same thing I'm doing with my students. And, I, and of course, I'm like, I know, we're great, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> but he said, but I mean, he said, just imagine what my students would be able to do in college yes. if they had started doing this when they were my son's age, when they were in seventh grade. You know, and I think, you know, that's what we kind of have to find and push, I, I understand completely all the pressures that are on classroom teachers where they have to do things that they don't want to do in ways they don't want to do in ways that are counter to what even what research says is best for kids because that's just the world we live in. So mm-hmm. I'm not faulting them at all. But when we have the opportunity sure. to present you know, any type of way you can, which is why I want you to talk about how you think maybe other teachers could apply this. If we have the opportunity to have kids work through processes like this, then we just create independent problem solvers who use creativity and aren't afraid of hard work to solve problems. And that's really what we want. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I, I believe this about every element of education. In, in history, uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, it was all about uh, advanced placement history and, and primary documents. And, and the notion, which was revolutionary in the 70s, was that high school students might be able to work with primary sources. And of course, by now, that has become an absolute staple of every single history course in every high school. Um, working with primary sources is absolutely standard. It turns out that primary sources weren't magical and that if you scaled, properly scaled their analysis to the developmental level of the students you were working with, you could get them into elementary schools, which is what happens now. And I think the same is true about, about game design. If, um, uh, and game playing. If you if you approach them from uh, developmentally appropriate places, they can be. Uh, uh, you can work with them at at any level. Um, in terms of what we're doing, I think I think I'm what I'm. Uh, it's actually it's a little easier to start from uh, for me, like sort of from the top, than to work things in. But um, like I, I believe that it's possible to have a college course totally built around historical game criticism, and I think that. Pieces of that can be brought into other courses in other ways. So, um, our course was all about games, but there might just be a moment in a course that, uh, where one takes a break and plays a game. Um, so if you're, uh, in a college classics class, if you're teaching the history of the Roman Empire, uh, we might have a week where we break out GMT's Time of Crisis, which is a beautiful game about, um, vying for, uh, to become the emperor of Rome in the second half of the third century. Um, and it's a, it's a playable game. Uh, it's a nice little break, but, but I, and I think this is a critical thing to, to play that game, uh, uh, with a little bit of academic support can, that's essentially your unit. That's your section that in the same way that, um, working with, uh, classroom simulations has to sort of replace what you do. It can't just be a supplement. It's gotta be good enough in my mind to actually be the lesson plan. 
And that's where a lot of games you know, have a hard time um, getting, say, Ticket to Ride into a serious conversation about 19th century railroad development at the college level. Um, so you do need a, a beefy enough game that uh, you can actually analyze it as a historical argument, in my view. Um, but where that point is depends on, on the level that, that you're teaching at. Mm-hmm. So. How does reacting to the past, because I've been doing more work with RPGs with my eighth grade and RPG design with them. Um, so what, how does reacting to the past work? Yeah, reacting to the past is a uh, college history pedagogy. It's now expanded beyond history, but it began in history, uh, developed primarily by a fellow named Mark Carnes at Barnard College. And the, uh, but by a, it's, there's a whole consortium and there's this amazing community of college educators who are testing and building reacting games. But the principle is essentially to establish a setting or a, a, a context like, um, the drafting of the constitution in 1787. And then you have a, a series of roles. So each student will take on a persona from that convention. Somebody, plays Benjamin Franklin, someone plays Madison, someone plays Edmund Randolph. And the structure of this, and they last for different weeks, but you might play one for six six weeks or so, um, is that there's a series of votes on, in this case, what will actually be in the Constitution. Uh, there are documents provided, and students in their character roles have to come up and make their cases for um, – voting in particular ways on particular things. So uh, their individual role sheet might say that um, uh, uh, we really want a president who cannot run for a second term. And so you get a, you get a point if you are able to get that into the constitution. So there's a kind of a fairly light game structure um, that is mostly driven by victory points to create an, a set of incentives. Um, but the real critical thing is that students are um, not only reading about the past, but they're applying that knowledge in arguments they have to make before the rest of the class. And they're interacting in roles. Uh, when it works well, you get them to dress up and they, <laughs> and there are a couple intrigues built into these games. Uh, we had a duel in our constitution game <laughs> and we had to fight out on the quad. Um, so they can be, uh, enormously engaging experiences when they work well. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. But like most role playing games, there's a, pretty heavy burden on the game master. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for, for me, I, I, I have a hard time imagining the reacting system um, being expanded. I think there's a kind of natural limit to its expansion simply because it asks an awful lot of game of teachers as game masters. Yeah. Board games on, the, and there are some interesting issues that we could talk about about representation in these games. What does mm-hmm. it What does it mean to represent a disabled person or an enslaved person? Those are some difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I suspect, or what I'm hoping for, are more board games that are designed with the all the elements that make modern board games fun, great, elegant mechanics, um, but that are also intended to do more 
teaching in ways that would be appropriate for the classroom Mm -hmm. because they ask less of instructors. All you have to know is how to play the game. You don't actually have to have to be this, this game master presence who is constantly working behind the scenes to make sure that the whole uh, ship doesn't founder. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's where I guess Catan could be a good example that like we were saying earlier, you know, you can use Catan to really look at how well it represents colonialism, but because it's so abstracted and it's not tied to a specific place, you know, teachers and students could apply that to, you know, any other place that they go in terms of how well does the game represent this and how does the game um, differ from the reality. So that could be a good way to think about it. So, you know, the games that do exist out there that, you know, and especially for a game like, you know, Catan, which is pretty easy to learn, you know, that one would work well, obviously. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I think the the real, the, you know, the real holy grail are games with simple mechanics that are easy to learn, but yet also pack a lot of historical message or academic argument in them as mm-hmm. well. Okay, so that actually brings up a question. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, um, I'm thinking of this one game in particular, and I don't even want to say the name of it, um, but I will because we're learning. Um, so for the for the example, I I had a problem when the game Secret Hitler came to market. Yes, good question. Um, and you know, it's interesting in terms of, you know, the different viewpoints on it. One, obviously, it's meant to, it's it's got a jarring, you know, kind of title. You know, the content, you know, the fact that someone gets to be Hitler, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a social deduction game, which tends to definitely be more on the party side of gaming. Um, I mean, I have friends, you know, everyone from, you know, uh, people who, you know, I've played, I've played it once and I played it with, um, amongst the Americans. There are four Germans and a, and a Spaniard. And I was just sitting there going, Oh my gosh, like, what am I doing? <laughs> Especially when, of course, I was the one who got the Hitler card. And I mean, I didn't, I had a hard time with it, but it was actually the other people who convinced me to play because they said, you know, it's a game. Let's just see how it is as a game. Like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, I really had a hard time with it as a, you know, just conceptually. My sister lives in Berlin. I spend a lot of time traveling around there and when you see all the memorials um, to everything that happened as a result like it's not funny to me and one of my friends had a copy of Secret Voldemort um, which is a much more fun much more playable version but what do you think about games like that now we talked about you know Five Tribes Endeavor you know has slavery as part of the game but this could probably be towards the other end of the spectrum where you know arguments about its historical um, accuracy to me get a little thin um, mm-hmm. But what's your thoughts on a game like that? Like, what's the responsibility that designers have when incorporating what could be incredibly sensitive, challenging content into a game, especially because games can be everything from, like you said, dry, detailed, absolutely instructional, not necessarily playable, to something that's incredibly playable, but, you know, you, you sacrifice some of that content. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, uh, that's a, a great insight. Um, it's that, it's Secret Hitler works on that slippery ground between, oh, it's a game. It's only fun. And no, this is something, this is something that makes some kind of argument. Um, and I, I have the same experience. It, it, I, I really don't want to be Hitler and I don't want to uh-huh. be in a game where someone plays Hitler. Um, but it th- like that's a great social deduction game. Um, and so the crazy thing for me about Secret Hitler is, is, Here's a here's a f- game that works phenomenally in terms of its mechanics. It's my favorite social deduction game, um, but uh, it it asks me to take on a role I don't want to take on. Now 
I might excuse it a little bit more if if that was in the service of making an actual point that seemed worth making but it's it's not even particularly good history like um I, I can imagine challenging players to take to be uncomfortable if there is a kind of payoff that makes it worth it but in in secret hitler the the mechanic doesn't actually work with the theme like mm-hmm. the the game rewards the Hitler player for looking to be the most liberal. So essentially it's a stealth position. You're trying to, trying to convince everyone that, convince the Reichstag that you're, that you're actually a liberal and then whammy, all of a sudden you're going to come out and be a fascist. That's, that really bears very little relation to the rise of, of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. So, um, to, to me, the, 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 my, my biggest concern is that it, asks this challenging thing of players, but it does not pay off with a lesson that's really accurate or worth learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where that, that lives for me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other games about challenging topics. So one is reminded of Brenda Romero's Train. Yeah, which I, was, is, I, was, I was actually going to bring that up. I'm glad you did. Yeah. So, so Brenda Romero is a video game designer and um, she began this blog called The Mechanic is the Message, which is a great title. Um, and you can see her TED talk on, uh, on, 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 uh, ex- explaining, trying to use games to explain to her children some difficult lessons in history. So she has a game on um, the Middle Passage, which took uh, enslaved Africans to the Americas. And she has this game Train. And the principle in Train is that, oh, you start out and it's just sort of a generic game where you're trying to move people around using trains. Um, only as you get into the game do you realize why you were doing that. And it turns out that you are actually moving people on trains so that because you're taking them to concentration camps. So in that game, which she poses as a, as a, as a piece of art and it's a game that, that uh, there's only one copy. And so it's, it's not meant for commercial purposes. It's not actually meant to be, to be played. But the notion is that you have this moment of revelation in the game when you realize that the game has, has made clear its metaphor and is asking you to do something completely terrible. Uh, that seems like a beautiful melding of mechanic and message to me in a way that Secret Hitler might not be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it does show, though, that there are, you know, there there is, um, you know, that side of the debate on 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 games that sort of says, you know, games should never take on challenging topics. There should never be any representation in it that isn't completely sterile and anodyne. And I think that it, it would sort of be like saying that art should never be challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about this medium of games that makes them capable of working with these complicated issues in some very nuanced and profitable ways. So I'm not somebody who thinks the game should never take on challenging topics. The question is really, how do you do that in a constructive way? Who is your audience? What level are you working at? And what your responsibility is in that process? Hmm. Well stated. Hmm. Yeah, like because I'm still, I'm, I'm still thinking on that. You know, especially for I'm just you know like looking around my game room right now. I mean, yeah, I don't want to have eighteen thousand. I mean, I love Lords of Waterdeep, but I don't necessarily want 
you know, the yeah. only place we can place our games is in you know the D&D it's universe. in fantasy worlds. And as we know, even in those fantasy worlds, oh, there yes. are all kinds of problems of um, gender representation oh, yes. and uh, all, all kinds of other things. So, and, and you know, and uh, some people get really bummed out by this, like, oh, man, isn't there anywhere in the culture where we're not beset by these issues? And, you know, the short answer is, is, is no, like there mm-hmm. really isn't anywhere. That doesn't mean, though, that we have to be constantly wringing our hands and we have to deploy drive ourselves of the joy of play. Um, it may be that, that, that play is the thing that lets us uh, cope with difficult issues in a relatively low stakes environment mm-hmm. um, that lets us explore things that otherwise we wouldn't feel comfortable exploring. Hmm. Okay. Well, th- Sorry, this we is got heavy. <laughs> no, 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 no. I no, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I think you know that escapism, you know, can be fun just from a pure entertainment standpoint. But it also can, you know, sort of help build, you know, perspective in terms of just different ways people want to live. Like with the analogy for as my students are working on developing their themes for their games, you know, no one really wants to be, you know, probably a manager at a cell phone store. I'm sure it pays Mm -hmm. well. It's an important job. We all have cell (laughs) phones, you know, but that's not necessarily people's dream when they're kids. You know, they want to, you know, be firefighters and be astronauts and stuff like that. And sometimes it means you just want to explore, you know, different places and travel around. And and so there is that sort of element in games where you do get to pretend and, you know, maybe you are trying to, you know, find Caesar, you know, to do nefarious things to him on, you know, the the Ides of Mars. March and all that, but that's that's okay, you know, like because in that sort of like safe play space, you know, we're doing yep. that. I mean, it just makes me think about you know, Cards Against Humanity. You know, you can play it. Like I think once or twice is probably enough for me ever, or was yes. enough for me ever. But you know, when you're playing it with friends, it can be okay. It's funny. You're saying things. You trust each other. But if you play with anybody you don't know, you're just like you are the most racist person I have ever met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or I mean, there there are plenty of games that that. Um, can kind of that break not because of their mechanics and rules, but because they ask players to do things that players don't want to do. So mm-hmm. the you know the there are um, some political games like Diplomacy is the kind of classic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I have a, a long-standing game group here in Brunswick, and and we thought we should, let's play Diplomacy. Come on, let's do it. We, it's been a while for all of us, and and it turned it turned into an experience we all walked away from because it it that game is just so so brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, it's powerful and fascinating because it um, exposes kind of who we are as people in this way. Um, but it can be there can be social costs even when the the, the subjects are not um, uh, you know socially challenging subjects. Well, and this yeah, and especially for that one, that's you know people always use diplomacy as the game that broke friendship. So it goes yes. beyond just the game itself. In fact, I've had students play it in my classroom, and whenever they do, I make them um, sign a letter saying that they will still be friends afterwards. <laughs> but the funny thing was is. Um, there's a local game convention here in St. Louis that um, a lot of them go to. And at uh, this game convention, um, there was someone running tournaments for diplomacy. And I think 90% of the players were my students because they knew it. They trusted each other. Like they had relationships outside of the game itself and they knew they could play it together. So they won like all the awards and all the plaques. This kid was best Germany. This kid was best this, best that. So they, this poor guy, like all the awards were taken out by my students, but that's because like they understood it and they could play it and they trusted each other as opposed to just like throwing it in with other people, which was 
which, you know, I was kind of tickled by, which, I mean, I guess if they're even better friends after playing Diplomacy, then I guess that's a win as well. So. Yeah, that's an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah we, pretty- we, we, yeah, we almost lost a couple friends in, in our play. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we, I, we, we would shift sometimes we play gunboat Diplomacy. So there is no interaction and you don't have to actually talk to anybody. And hence, you don't have to break any promises or anything like that. So that's going in the other direction. But so, but I, I'm very, it sounds like you're students got a lot out of that experience that went beyond just the experience of play. Like they sort of learned about how each other operated and developed mm-hmm. a sense of trust. That's pretty valuable stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They all play D&D together. It's, I mean, it just like it makes me so proud. Um, so let's talk about fun stuff. What games do you like to play for fun? Um, oh boy, I'm a very eclectic gamer. So um, I, I uh, you know, love the kind of modern Euro stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, learned a lot of modern game stuff from Rhino Knizia's game designs, Taj mm-hmm. Mahal and stuff like that. Kalis is still way up there. I love worker placement games. Mm-hmm. I um, But I also like, um, and some of the heavier Euros, I like Vira Lacerda's games, like um, uh, Vinos, I think is a brilliant design. Uh, if I had a favorite designer would probably be Martin Wallace, though. Uh, such a, a beautiful melding of um, of mechanics in uh, of elegant mechanics with historical themes. Um, Wallace is just incredible. Um, and lately, I think I've been moving more and more into GMT games, um, sort of leaning more toward heavier games. Um, uh, their their coin series about counterinsurgency games like Liberty or Death and Falling Skies, Andean Abyss are 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 beautiful uh, designs that spring the kind of military old style military war games closer to Euro games concerns with broader social phenomena and simpler and more elegant rule sets. So uh, people are talking more about Waros, like Time of Crisis from GMT is a, is a war game that is also a Euro. Um, and I, I find that combination um, incredibly intriguing because you get the, the elegant mechanics along with historical topics that are dealt with with in a thoughtful way. So do you find yourself ever having difficulty separating Patrick at work playing games versus Patrick at home playing games? I mean, because I do. And there are times when the last thing I want to do is play a game because I've been playing <laughs> games and talking about games all day long that sometimes I, you know, I just can't do that anymore. Or I play things that I don't necessarily play with my students. Where do you do? Is that a problem yeah. for you if it's not good? But you Yeah, know, like, no, I, I, I wish that, that I had talked to you before I started doing all this stuff about classrooms and ga- uh, classes, uh, games and classrooms, because of course, that's exactly what I found. I sort of <laughs> turned play into work and then uh, it, it can start start feeling like work um, I haven't hit that burnout point yet but I am I'm I'm aware of it mm-hmm. and uh, you know it, it would be an enormous bummer if uh, working with games in classrooms uh, wound up spoiling my actual interest and fun in playing games which I, I it's kind of I think it's an, an important point Kathleen um, Ian Bogost a video game theorist wrote a, an article uh, called uh, gamification is is bull, and then the four letter word that followed. Mm. And essentially, the point of Bogus article is that it is possible to gamify many many things. You can 
gamify the human resources uh, instruction and workshop that you're supposed to take. You can gamify um, buying airline tickets and things online with reward systems. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should do it um, because uh, there's a way that that simply gamifying things can can, uh, diminish them in some fashion, diminish games in Mm -hmm. some fashion. So I, I like where you're thinking about this because it, it kind of reminds us that games are and play is a special time and a special place, and there's some value in, in preserving its liminality. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, game design has become more important to me because it's a way to still muck around, but not just you know consumer thinking about what did he do and why did he do this. Now it's what am I doing? <laughs> like yeah. really, no, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, uh, but I think it's a good thing. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes you just you know I can't gamify anything else. Or when I teach something like with um, my eighth grade, we let them choose what we do. So we're doing congressional debate, and I coach debate um, at our high school. So this is something I know, but it's it's really kind of refreshing. And there's a lot of similarities. You know, it's very process based. There's not necessarily a right answer. You know those sorts of things that I like mm-hmm. and I think are important for my students, but it's also so content-based and structural and, you know, and it's, you know, the outcomes are sort of out of my hands. And yes. um, and so I actually really, en- I've enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, you know, because and I'm teaching filmmaking right now too, so they're all making little baby Hitchcock <laughs> movies. We watched The Birds and we watched um, uh, and we watched Rear Window, and now they have to make their own sort of like silent black and white, you know, minute long suspense films. You know, so it is definitely good, I think, for anyone within working with any kind of creative properties to definitely, yeah. you know, take a break from them, do other things too, because otherwise, I mean, there's probably some people who all they want to do is games, 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 and think about games, but I'm just not one of them, and I. The, the thing yeah. I want least in the world is to become burnt out or to say, okay, no more of this, because to me, that would just be a great, great loss. And I would never want to see that happen. Yeah. It, it sounds like you do amazing things with your students in a lot of different amazing ways. And and that that is just so, so valuable to become sort of dogmatic about play seems like a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's what I spend my life. But if it makes you feel better, um, Bowdoin College will suddenly become one of the universities, that the, the unit colleges that I start promoting heavily with my students, you know, say, no, there's this class you guys can take, you guys. You don't even oh, know. Send them send them my way. I will be more than happy to. Well, this has been, been so fantastic. So phenomenal. One last question, because I just saw it on my little list, and I think this is a good one. Is there any historical period or event that you would like to see gamified or sneaky question are you playing around with any particular game ideas uh yeah i've I've been sort of a hobby game designer for a long time uh and uh i've never gotten anything to the point of publication but Mm -hmm. i love the process of exploring you know different uh aspects of history and just human interaction in games. So uh, it's a great question. Uh, my two candidates, I'm, I'm working on a game design on reconstruction right now. Oh, wow. Um, a game that that um, it's a topic that nobody takes on in games. Uh, the Civil War and the military conflict just completely overshadows it. But uh, reconstruction that, that 10, 12 years after the Civil, American Civil War is, I think, the most fascinating period in American history. It was an, uh, long been a love of mine. And I would, I would love to try to uh, uh, create a game around that in some fashion. 
Cool. Uh, and then the other topic is – so one of the great things that games do is they let you explore counterfactuals in, in interesting ways. So um, uh, when we were playing our, our, our game on the Constitution, uh, we read uh, from a book uh, called Peace Pact by a guy named Henriksen. And the, 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 the point of this book was to sort of suggest how fragile the early union of 13 states was and to imagine if they had not been – together, if they had not been united in one grand republic. And if you read the Federalist Papers, you see these constant references. Ha uh, Hamilton is constantly talking about the dissolution of these states if they do not join together. So I think another interesting historical topic for a game to, to explore would be that counterfactual. 1787, and we have 13 separate states. What does the world look like then? Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because especially when I'm thinking back, I mean, I hated teaching American History 1. Um, mm -hmm. If I could have just started teaching basically like either post-Civil War or even just 20th century or ancient history, those are the two types, you know, because yeah. especially, you know, the the... And, and it's, and it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways from what we know about history, you know, the early American history is so fascinating because of all of these big, you know, enlightenment questions at play in terms of mm -hmm. who do we are and what do we want to be. And especially when you're looking at the fact that we still have our constitution, um, working with us, working for us now, you know, there's obviously a lot of, you know, importance to those events too. And I think maybe, and I, that, I think that's really interesting, but especially yeah. Reconstruction, because that's just, you know, in terms of teaching, it's like the wah, wah. Oh, you thought everything was going to be okay. Guess what? No. That's right. That's right. It's a terrible story. And we don't tell it. That's why we don't tell it in feature films either, because mm -hmm. we can't, you know, it's very difficult to tell a story with an upward tra trajectory. Yes. But so, and, but the, and these are some of the most complicated topics in American history are the ones that are, mm -hmm. uh, the, the ones that are hardest to grasp are the ones that don't end well necessarily, um, which is all the more reason for, uh, trying to uh, convey that message through a game. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been so incredibly entertaining and enjoyable and fascinating. And I just have all kinds of little notes that I've scribbled down on things that I want to keep thinking about and playing with. And, you know, the possibility exists, I think, at some point for me to teach at our high school. And they've, they've asked me about doing something class related or game related, excuse me, um, at our high school. You know, and you've given me a lot of different ways and a model, honestly, in terms of what I could do um, with my students here. And so I, I've learned so much from this, and this has been so incredibly fascinating. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, the work I've done is, is based on a lot of other educators, a lot of people chiming in on Board Game Geek and, and other people at, uh, um, uh, games and learning conferences. And, and so, uh, this is not original stuff, but, uh, uh, I hope that by promoting it a little bit, we can get more games in more classrooms. Excellent. We are agreed. We've, <laughs> we've spent a lot of time agreeing with each other today. That's a good day. <laughs> that is true. If we didn't agree, we've, that's also fun too, of course. <laughs> even on, on bacon, we're on the same page as well. So that's we good to know. We are on the same page on bacon. In fact, there may be some more downstairs. Who knows? We'll see. So, <laughs> well, Patrick, if people want to reach out to you to find out more about what you do, where can they find you? Sure. The first place I'd send people is to my uh, Board Game Geek blog, which blog, which is called Ludica, L-U-D-I-C-A. So you can just Google Ludica Board Game Geek and you should find me. Um, I'm a history professor at Bowdoin College and my email is P-R-A-E-L at Bowdoin.edu. And Bowdoin is spelled weird, B-O-W-D-O-I-N. Uh, and I would love to hear from people. 
That's awesome. Well, this is, I am Kathleen Mercury. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Mercury with 7M. So it's at Mercury. Um, I share all my game design resources on my website, KathleenMercury.com for free. I, what's the point of having them sit in a folder? Other people might as well use them. It's um, excellent, by the way. Oh, thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I mean, when I got started, I could find very little or it was, you know, um, there was very little out there when I first got started. Now there's lots of people teaching games in the classroom. And it's really so edifying because, you know, there's people all over the world that, you know, you know, message me. I found this. This is great. I need to do a workshop with kids. I had no idea what to do. I found your website and this like answered all my questions. And I mean, I've coached people on the phone. So that's honestly, and that's one of the reasons that got me um, to do this podcast was um, just reaching out and trying to connect with with other educators most you know kind of stay in their classes or they you know collaborate within their school or their district but this has um, been such an amazing way to connect with other people I mean like yourself you know thinking about this discussion I wouldn't have been able to have this so um, it was a really <laughs> kind of like a uh, uh, little bit of a ego I guess to like I can do this I'll put this out there but on the other hand it's worked sure. out great so I'm okay well with it's it. a great model for others to follow it's a great for students to see somebody who's who's doing this and showing what's possible and it's a, it really is a, a wonderful set of resources. So we, we owe you a lot of appreciation. Oh, that's so nice. Well, thanks. Well, in other places, if you need to find me, I float around a lot on um, Facebook groups like Card and Board Game Designers. That's a good one. Association of Game Educators. There's a bunch of great ones. And then, of course, this is the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. If you're interested in being on the show, if you do work with game education, or if you want to find out more, email me. I'm always happy um, to hear from you. I'm on Board Game Geek as, at, as Funk Donut. So either way, um, for Twitter, Board Game Geek, um, please reach out. So Patrick, again, thank you so much. This has been such a delight, and um, hopefully you'll be able to come on the show soon another time. Thanks so much. I hope so, too. Excellent. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. If you would like to be on the show or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible.